Good morning, Freshwater Church. Um, the, I have a news flash for you. Uh, you're a part of something far bigger than just being a church in Wadsworth, Ohio. You do know that, right? There's a sense in which we're all a part of the family of God universal. There's a sense that all of us who follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are part of one collective family. But even within families, as we spread out and spread around, we end up being a part of different tribes. And Freshwater Church is a part of a specific tribe. We call it a denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Now, I just want to give you a little perspective on this. Uh, here in the United States, Freshwater Community Church is one of a little over 2,000 churches in the Christian Missionary Alliance. You heard Monique talk just a few minutes ago about the Duics going over to Senegal. The Christian Missionary Alliance is actually in some 80 countries around the planet. Uh, there's well over 20,000 sister churches to Freshwater Church in the Christian Missionary Alliance. You're part of a group of about 500,000 here in the United States and around the world, over 5 million people who call the Christian Missionary Alliance home. We, we have this little logo that we use. You see it up here. There's the globe that's in the background. That actually reflects on this idea of the Great Commission. Jesus said that you and I need to go and make disciples everywhere we go. All around us, we need to reach out to people who need to know Jesus. Uh, here within our own community, we live within three miles. This church is within three miles of about 27,000 people. If the statistics are anywhere remotely near correct, less than 20% of those 27,000 people know Jesus as Lord and Savior, which means within basically walking distance of this church are some 20 plus thousand people who need to know Jesus. They're your neighbors, they're your coworkers. Uh, they're sometimes your family. Uh, and then, of course, we have this idea that it's not just here, it's everywhere. And Jesus later, after he talked about that great commission, tells us that we're to go and be his witnesses literally to the ends of the earth. And hence, we have that kind of globe in our logo to remind us we're a part of something far bigger than ourselves. And then there's those four symbols that are there. We have kind of a core value focus on Jesus Christ as our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Jesus, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Now, when I say to people, if you were to kind of brainstorm with me and go, so which of the four symbols reflect on which, pretty much everybody goes, oh, Jesus, our Savior. That's probably the cross, and you'd be well on track. That would be good. And you go, the Christ our coming king, there's a crown up there, I'm going to lay money on it, that that's the one about him coming back someday. Uh, it actually, to put the globe and the crown together, Jesus said, this good news of the kingdom of God will be proclaimed to all the people groups, and then the end will come. It's part of our mission. But then people have a hard time. You start looking and they start saying, so I, I don't get the beer mug and the wine glass. And I don't quite know what that has to do with our church and our tribe. And it's a really, really good question. The, in our artwork, I suppose, maybe we leave some things to the 
imagination. The, what you might look at as a beer mug is actually uh, a pitcher. A pitcher of oil is the symbolism of it. We talk about Jesus Christ, our healer. Throughout the Bible, you'll find that they used anointing oil to signify wholeness and health and healing. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 5, we're told that if anybody among you is sick and in need, call for the elders of your church, and they'll come and they'll anoint with oil, which signifies the presence of the Holy Spirit and healing power. And we will, it's not that the oil heals us, it's just a sense of our trust in the one who is our healer. And then that wine glass, well, what's that all about? Well, actually, it's not meant so much to be a wine glass. It's meant to be something far bigger, uh, big enough to take up pretty much the open space here on this platform, a basin, a, a wash tub of a basin. Uh, it goes back to the book of Exodus. Uh, you'll find that there where, watch what it says with Moses. Moses had to take this, uh, Exodus chapter 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a bronze basin and with it a bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of the meeting and the altar, and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with the water from it. So the, what looks like a small glass is meant to be this massive basin. It was in the tabernacle and then the temple. It was meant for washing. Well, what's the implication of all of that? Well, the implication is this. There's a bunch of normal guys. They were called the priests. They weren't anything more or less special than any of us. They had a calling by God to serve him. But they didn't just come and serve him in any old way. They needed to prepare themselves and to symbolize that as they would come to do their work, their ministry every day, they would wash. It's consecration, sanctification. The word sanctify actually means to be set apart, that the ordinary is set apart to God to become extra ordinary. And people who were just normal people were symbolically set apart for God's work, clean, useful in God's hands. Now, we take that Old Testament symbol into the New Testament, and actually we just sang about this in our song. It says, it says that Jesus, we just sang the song where Jesus, his life, his death, his blood that was shed, that actually were cleansed, were washed in Jesus Christ, in the blood that he shed on the cross. It's a fascinating symbol that would take a lot of fun time to work into. We're not going to do that today, but just simply make this observation that Christ Jesus is our sanctifier. He is the one who cleanses us, who sets us apart. He takes all of us. In the New Testament, where it's told that all of us are priests, all of us are servants of the Lord, and as such, all of us need to be set apart for the king's work, for the Lord's mission. And we are washed. We who are ordinary are made extraordinary in the power and presence of the divine. That's the symbolism of that cup in the symbol. It's the idea of being cleansed and set apart. It's a part of our journey. This whole idea of salvation, I just want to give you a real quick picture before we move into some application for ourselves. So what is salvation? Some people would say that I was saved way back when. Other people would say I'm being saved. Actually, the Bible says I was saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. The Bible uses salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. 
all of them being true. It's an umbrella. I want to show you this, this little umbrella of salvation. So there's a past tense part of this. When I was seven years old, in Mrs. Savaney's junior church class at Talmadge Alliance Fellowship over on the other side of Akron, I prayed a little prayer at the end of her class called a sinner's prayer. I acknowledged that I needed Jesus as my Savior, that I was born in sin and I needed forgiveness, and I needed what he had taken care of on the cross. And on that day, I was saved. It's not in doubt. I don't gain it and lose it. It doesn't come and go. I was saved. I can actually say I am saved. It was a past tense work that carries on through this day. But the Bible also says that I am being saved. So I am saved. I am being saved. And then it also says I will be saved. Well, what's the key word for the idea of the past tense. The big biblical word, if you want to impress people with uh, your supposed knowledge, would be this word justification. That's the word of scripture. That would be what happened back in Mrs. Savaney's classroom when I accepted Jesus. Jesus took my place. And God declared me righteous. Not because I really was, but because Jesus is. And Jesus took my place. It's justification. We often use the term salvation to refer to that place, that time when we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But then there's this word sanctification. That's what is describing this idea that I am being saved. Sanctification is a journey. It's a journey of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And then there's what we would call glorification. Glorification is what's going to happen for us someday in heaven. Someday we're going to be in the presence of the Father. Someday it's all going to be different. And as much as I treasure my salvation today, it's going to feel all different in glory. It's going to be a different world altogether. So then we go back to this idea, I've been declared righteous, that's the idea of justification, but just because I'm declared righteous doesn't mean I always act righteous. So that leads us to the next part, that I want to be made righteous, and then someday I will be righteous. I get to say that I am righteous. What happened when I was first saved is that I and many of you were set free from the penalty of sin. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because sin had us doomed to a Christless eternity, a, a, we call hell a place away from God. And so I've been set free from the penalty of sin. But I still struggle with the power of sin. Do any of you? And that's what sanctification is about. It's about being set free from the power of sin. I long for that to be more and more the reality of my life, that I'm no longer entrapped and struggling with the power of sin. And someday in glory, I will be set free from the presence of sin. I won't even be able to sin anymore. I won't even be able to be selfish and do all the wrong things. It won't even be a possibility or a want to anymore in heaven. And I look forward to that day. That's the whole umbrella of salvation. What took place, what is taking place, and what will take place, it's the journey that all of us get to be on. Now, I just want to make a few comments about you. Here's what I know about you. Between the two services today, there's going to be some 500 people that are here at Freshwater Church. 
Here's what I know about you. Some of you who are sitting here right now are not yet Christians. You've not yet given your life to Jesus Christ. You're coming to church. You're maybe curious or maybe somebody dragged you. You're trying to put on a certain face or you're trying to explore. You're on a journey And there's a part of you that's going through a couple of things right now, even as I talk, because the Spirit of God is with us. The Holy Spirit is at work, and he's whispering things into your heart right now, even as I'm talking. It has nothing to do with my speaking ability. It has everything to do with the presence of God. And some of you right now know that when I say that some of you who are here are not yet Christ followers, Christians, you know that it refers to you. You just know that. And there's two things that go on, like the two voices, like the little angel and and little Satan thing on each shoulder whispering, and that's a silly little cartoon kind of a thought, but it's a reality in some very serious ways that there's a voice within you that's going, you need to shut him out right now. There's a voice within some of you that says, you need to literally and figuratively hold your hands up and resist this thought that you need Jesus. And there's another voice within you. There's just actually this longing inside of you that says, I wonder if it's true. And I wonder what it would be like to be a follower of Jesus, to be set free from my selfishness and sin that seems to trap me in all this stuff, the crud of my life. And I wonder if I really can't do it on my own and I need what God will do for me. And there's a pull within you that wants to follow that. And I would love if before the day is done, that you would follow that voice, that you would obey what the Spirit of God is saying to you and drawing you to himself. That's one group of people that are here. There's another group of people that are here, and you've been followers of Jesus, whether for a long time or a short time, whether it's been years and years of a journey or maybe just a few weeks, but you're living in what you know and feel to be a victorious Christian life. It feels rewarding. It feels powerful. You, you know what it is to walk side by side with your Savior. You know what it is to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what it is to consistently be able, in the power of God, to say no to temptation and sin, to serve Him faithfully and see Him work through you in ways that make a difference. And you have already learned and embraced some of the things I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. And then there's a group of you that are here. Maybe I could even say many of you. Maybe even typically in our churches, Christian Mission Alliance and otherwise, churches all around Wadsworth, I would actually tend to say a majority of people. People who come to church and you struggle. Deep down, you struggle. You know what it is to be locked into strongholds of bad habits and addictions. You know what it is to be caught in something you don't want to be caught in and unable to escape the riptide that seems to want to pull you to someplace unhealthy. You know what it is to be caught up in fear. Some of you are sitting here and you carry immense pain and hurt. Some of it's self-inflicted, Sometimes not self-inflicted at all, but things that have been done to cause harm to you throughout your life, and you feel the pain of it, and it traps you in fear and anxiety. 
traps you into addictions and denial. And some of you are here and you're caught up into all kinds of wrong life and wrong habits. there's, There's people sitting here in this room who last night or maybe even this morning have been looking at pornography on their phone or their computer. I know, I know that's true, right here in this room. There's somebody here that is having an affair. There's somebody here who's really close to having an affair and being unfaithful. You're well down the pathway. You know it. You see it coming. You try, try to say that you're not going to do that, but you, you keep posturing yourself in an unhealthy place. There's some of you who are here who struggle deeply with anger, anger to the point of rage and sometimes even outburst. You've gotten physical with your kids or your spouse in ways that you know are out of control. And you can't seem to beat that one consistently. Some of you that can hardly help yourself but to exaggerate and tell a story, to lie, to gossip. Dishonesty is pretty much a hallmark of your life in one form or another. Some of you who are caught in addictions that we in the world, especially the church world, would view as really bad addictions. And there's some of you who are caught into addictions that we actually don't make them sound quite so bad, but they are. Addictions to food and addictions to entertainment, addictions to escapism, and on and on it goes. And some of you struggle deeply with self-esteem, feeling that you're completely worthless. Others of you struggle deeply with a sense of desire for power and superiority, both extremes actually being a form of pride in one way or another. Or something else entirely. And you feel like you're in this whirlpool and it spins around and around and it feels like it's dragging you closer and closer to that vortex and you wonder when the collapse is going to come. And you feel unlovely and unlovable and unloved. And you come to church on a Sunday and you put on the nice face and you sing the songs, and it makes you feel a little bit better because it's kind of like an ointment a little bit on a wound for a while. And you look around an auditorium like this, and you see other people that seem to be smiling, and it seems like they have it all together. That somehow, maybe you happen to step out for a bathroom break at that church service, where the secret was given to everybody, and you missed it. And somehow you're still stuck. And you don't know how to get free, and you keep trying. You try your hardest because you hear people, sometimes even good Christian people, sometimes even good pastors and good sermons or good counselors, who will tend to tell you some form or variation of try harder, get your act together, buck up, just say no, What's wrong with you? And you live in the guilt of not being able to overcome. And you come to church and you go, oh, if they knew what I was like inside or if they knew what I was like during the week instead of when I'm here in this building, it would be an embarrassing moment. 
As a matter of fact, for some of you, you could have written, or it could have been written about you, a rather fascinating paragraph in the Bible. It's found in Romans chapter 7. You can just look at it up here on the screen, Romans chapter 7. The author writes, says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know, for I know what good itself does, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Some of you could have written that. Romans chapter 7, I call it the doo-doo chapter. Try reading it five times fast. But it describes the tug of war, the wrestling match that many of you Christ followers find yourself in. Where deep down you want to do what's right. And it's sincere. You know that you're a child of God. That's not in question. But boy, you know you're not living like it. And you know you're not free. And you know what it is to have a ball and chain around your ankle when you run to run the marathon of the Christian life. By the way, that passage was written by the most famous Christian of all history. We call him the Apostle Paul, the man who is missionary to the nations, a man who encountered Jesus in a most astounding way on a road one day. It transformed his life. And yet still... He came to a place where he said basically what I think many of you have said at one time or another. Huh, this all seems a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. When I first came to know Jesus, it all seemed like the bed of roses, and now there's a lot of weeds and thorns. When I first came to Jesus, it felt like I could control the world, and I was going to show God Thanks for his salvation and what an incredible life I was going to live for him and how I was going to prove him right for saving me. And somewhere along the line, you come to this place where you go, huh, I'm not really seeming to be able to make it. And at that point, we finally come to face to face with our need of not just Christ our Savior, but Jesus Christ our Sanctifier. I work with pastors. I'm in charge of one of the districts here in the United States. There's 20-some of them. Eastern Ohio, West Virginia, about 90 churches of which this church is a part. About 200 pastors and licensed workers of which your staff is a part. 
And I insist that all of them be able to explain this idea of sanctification so that a 16-year-old could understand it. It's not just a conversation for the hallways of seminaries and professors and bishops and boring doctrine lectures. Let me describe it to you this way. If I were to say to you, no matter what age you are, do you ever feel the tug within you to do what's wrong? Do you feel the power of temptation pull at you to be sinful or selfish? You all would say, yes, okay, you get to do the bobblehead thing, go, I get that, that's me. And here's my statement to you, might surprise you, but my statement to you is this, you are incapable of actually being able to have enough power to say no to those temptations. You cannot do it. Satan and the power of sin will beat you every single time. Every time you think, I got this covered, you don't. Every time you say, I can win this one, you can't. You do not have the ability, but Jesus in you does. You don't know how to win, but Jesus does. So the first part of sanctification is, do you feel the power of sin pulling you, the power of selfishness? We all would say yes, and you need to come to the realization that it's not how hard you work to have victory. You cannot. You need to surrender to the one who already won the victory. He will give you the victory. That's the first part. The second part, I could look at you, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, and say, hey, would you like to serve God faithfully, to be effective? Would you like to make a difference in this world and a difference in people's lives? And I think that if you're a follower of Jesus, a regular churchgoer, you would say, yes, I do want to. And I just need to say to you, you can't. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you can't. You're inept, you're incompetent, you cannot do it. You cannot make an eternally significant difference in anybody's life. You can't serve God faithfully. You will fall on your face, you'll trip up, you'll muck it up. But Jesus in you can and does. And that is the reality of sanctification. It's coming to the realization that in this tug of war of power, the power to be victorious over sin is not something I can do. The empowerment to serve God well is not something I can do. I need to come to the place where I'm at the end of myself and I go, I can't do this. I quit. I need Jesus to do it in me and through me. That is Christ, our sanctifier. That is where the ordinary becomes extraordinary. That is where we move from just simply behavior modification to transformation. That Jesus doesn't want you and I to just try harder to behave better. He wants us to be transformed from the inside out. How many of you at one time or another wore one of those WWJD bracelets? Right? Remember, what would Jesus do? Right? Good noble concept, right? We should try to do what Jesus would do. There's a whole book on it. You can read it. Sidney Sheldon wrote it um, in his steps. Fascinating little book. I just need to tell you, as noble as it was, nobody who ever wore the WWJD bracelet ever was successful at it. You can't be. You can't be. 
One of the key lessons of life is when you and I come to the place of realizing that I am completely incapable of acting like Jesus. But Jesus is really good about being himself in me if I will get out of the way and let him. So, I'm up here talking a little bit, and you might need to ask yourself, so, is he just talking, or is this the Bible? That would be a good question, because there's a whole lot of cults and all kinds of other things that got started because people just trusted that the guy up front with the microphone knew what he was talking about, and they follow all kinds of pathways that are incredibly unhealthy, and they drink Kool-Aid, and bad things happen. (laughs) So, the containers are outside in the foyer. Um, So is this God's word or is it just the thought that I have for the day? Well, let's briefly look at this. We are reading Romans chapter 7, and I stopped at verse 24, and I didn't go to verse 25, and I want you to see verse 25 up here. The next verse, the Apostle Paul writes, but thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the Apostle Paul found out that it wasn't a policy, it wasn't a program, it wasn't a principle, it wasn't a practice, it was a person that he needed to make the difference in his life. He grew up as a Pharisee, a religious leader. If anybody knows how to act good, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And he then encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. His life is transformed, he's saved, and yet still he goes, I just discovered, I keep, I thought, wow, I know how to obey God really well, and I'm saved now, this is gonna be easy. And then he says, it's not, what a wretched man I am. I can't even get my act together on this but Jesus can. And then we have a very unfortunate chapter break. You do know that the chapters and verses are not original in the Bible, right? Uh, Somebody added those later, and they did a pretty good job, but it doesn't always serve us well. If you were like me and grew up in church, you would have memorized Acts chapter 8, verse 1 in Sunday school class and started it into this marvelous chapter called Romans chapter 8, but in reality, it's the transition from chapter 7, and we ought not to miss it. The next verse is this, 8.1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you feel a great deal of condemnation. As a matter of fact, you're going, hey, you're heaping it on my head. And I just want to tell you that for every day you try in your own strength to try to win this thing, you're not going to get there. You're going to feel frazzled, fearful, defeated, disappointed, and you're going to feel condemnation, guilt. But the Apostle Paul, it's almost like there ought to be a heavy sigh here. He goes, what a wretched man I am. I've tried so hard. I can't get this together. Who could possibly help me? Oh, it's Jesus. I just need to surrender to Jesus. And at that point, he goes, oh, I no longer feel condemnation when I'm in Jesus. And he breaks into this marvelous chapter, Romans 8, of what life is like in the surrendered life to Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most astounding things you'll ever come across. But it's not just there. Colossians, same guy right in Colossians chapter 1, he writes this, I have become its, he's talking about the church, I've become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. 
Now let me just say this before you read the rest. When he says in his fullness, basically what Paul is saying, I could tell you a lot of things, but if I don't tell you this piece, I have failed to give you the most important part, and I've failed to do my job as somebody God has called. What is he supposed to tell them? The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. That's all of us. What is the mystery? To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that's all of us, the glorious riches of this mystery. What is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not about how well I behave. It's about me letting Jesus inhabit me and let him be in charge. Let him be in control, not me. A couple other places, Paul writes about it this way. He says, you need to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. It's your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that only God can do. In Colossians 2.6, he says this. He says, hey, in the same way you came to know him as Lord and Savior, so now walk in him. How did I come to know him as my Lord and Savior? That salvation past tense, it was this. How, could you save yourself? No, nobody could save themselves, right? You're incapable. The only work you do for salvation is to receive it. Jesus, I admit I need you. I quit trying to do it myself. I receive your gift of eternal life. Paul says, in the same way you came to him then to start this journey, so now walk in him. How do you do that? Every day, moment by moment. Jesus, I'm not going to do today well unless you do it through me. Jesus, I'm not going to beat sin unless you do it through me. Jesus, I'm not going to be able to be faithful in serving you unless you do it through me. I surrender to you today. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15. He's walking around with his followers like you, and he says, hey, you see all those vineyards there and the vines and the branches? You're all like branches, and I'm the vine. You need to abide in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. One of Jesus' followers said it this way, John 3.30, his name is John the Baptist, says this, he must increase, I must decrease. Let Jesus be in charge, get me out of the way, is basically what he says. And Jesus put it this way to us, he says, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. What's the cross a symbol of? The cross is a symbol of death, is it not? We need to die every day. The Apostle Paul actually said that, I die daily. Actually, sometimes I think I need to die like every minute. Because living sacrifices tend to try to crawl off the altar. Now, let me just say this to you. You say, so the guy from corporate just showed up, and our offices are, so I count this church as my home, um, along with the majority of my team. But I need you to know, there, there was the old commercial where the guy with the hair care stuff said, I, I'm not just the president, I'm a client. And I just need you to know that, that it's not just head knowledge, it's not just words on the paper, it's been my reality as well. I was seven years old in Mrs. Savaney's class when I accepted Jesus as my savior. When I hit my teen years and my college years, I was like probably a whole lot of people in this room, especially you guys, struggled with impurity in my head. Um, that was mine. Your struggles might have been different. 
different of us have different areas. That was mine. I just struggled to beat that. Thinking the wrong things, looking at the wrong things, doing the wrong things. Got married to a wonderful Christian gal and thought it would all go away because no longer do I have to wonder about things. But when sin is a stronghold, sin is a stronghold. And I was 10 years... 15 years before I became a pastor and then 10 years as a pastor and I'm still struggling. And you do know that when we struggle with things privately, they never will stay that way forever. Do you know that? You think it's your secret. You think it's going to be locked in there and it will not be. If you don't bring it to Jesus and deal with it at the cross, it will overflow. It will bubble out guaranteed and not at a time or way of your choosing. And I can remember 10 years as a youth pastor, 25 years as a Christian, sitting in a room with a group of youth pastors, and we were supposed to be working on some private stuff and assessing our own journey. Uh, We were going through something that actually they do here at this church, and some of you ought to take advantage of it with the staff and others here, Steps to Victory in Christ, Um, Steps to Freedom. And I was just processing all that, and I came to a conclusion right then that I needed to go back from that conference and I needed to resign. I had to quit because I was way down the path to ruining a marriage, ruining my kids, ruining a church, ruining somebody else, way, way down this path. And I said, Jesus, I've tried everything. I mean, how many things do you have to try? How much harder do you have to cry sometimes to prove to God that you really mean it this time versus the 500 other times? How angry do you have to be with yourself to prove that it's serious this time? How much willpower do you have to have? How much white knuckle trying do you have to do to go this time that God knows you're more serious? And I just knew that I've tried it and I've tried it repeatedly ad nauseum and it had never worked, at least never for very long. And I came to a place and I just said, Jesus, I have to quit. If you don't do something right now, I will go home and resign. There is no other good way for me. And I think that in the hallways of heaven, right that moment, God the Father stood up from his throne and he went, And he said, Jeff, I've been waiting for 25 years for you to quit trying to be a good Christian and surrender and let my son live through you. And I will tell you, everything changed that day. I still have to die daily, but it all changed at that first point to where I quit striving and I surrendered. It's what Jesus talks about. It's Matthew chapter 11. We'll close with this up here. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think weary and heavy laden describes some of you in this room. You're Christians, but man, it feels hard and heavy. You're weary of this journey. You can't seem to get anywhere. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the only pathway to victory. Jesus is not only your only way to salvation, he's your only way to sanctification, he's your only way to the 
freedom from the penalty of sin. He's your only way to freedom over the victory of the power of sin. There is no other way. Jesus is our sanctifier. It was all taken care of at the cross. And I'm going to say a prayer right now, and we'll be dismissed. But I just need to say that there's some of you in this room, and it will feel a little bit humbling, because being honest with God is always a little bit humbling, even though he knows everything about us. But some of you need to make your way here to the front. There's nothing magical about being here at the front other than that you need to be obedient because God wants you to deal with this now. There's a voice whispering in your head saying, put this off, don't do this right now, don't do this here today, deal with it tomorrow, and tomorrow will become next month, next year, next never. I'm just telling you, that's a lie from the enemy. And some of you, as we dismiss, you need to come and sit or kneel here at the front, and there'll be myself or somebody else, one of the leaders here from the church, We're, we're eager to pray with you to essentially have you pray a prayer like some of you did at salvation only now you're going to be saying Jesus I acknowledge that this is the struggle of my life and in the same way I surrender to you for my salvation I'm going to surrender to you will you fill me will you overflow me I need to decrease you need to increase now we would love to pray with you to get you moving on that pathway it may just be your first steps that's okay because then you'll practice those steps day in and day out. And there's people here at the church who love to help you with that as well. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. Most of all, I thank you that you're not just the God out there somewhere. You're the God here in my life and in each person's life who has followed you as a child of God. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we have quenched and stifled you because we, with sometimes noble intent, have tried really hard to do it our way and handle it as best we can and try to slog through it all and figure it out. And yet, Lord, we're going to acknowledge that we just keep banging our heads on this brick wall that holds us back from victory. And Lord, it's refreshing to know that it's not just that you will give the victory, you already took care of the victory when you died on the cross for us. And we get to appropriate it, we get to embrace that into our lives. And Lord, some of my friends here need to take maybe a first significant step of Christian surrender today. And I pray that they will not walk out of here without having followed through in the way your spirit is clearly tugging on their hearts right now. And I thank you for what you have done, are doing, and will do. Jesus, you are incredible. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.